0: Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves To help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies. And inwardly in our souls. That we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body. And from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we're well into the season of Lent right now. And during the season of Lent, we're asking the question, what does this mean? We're looking at the cross and asking the question, what does this mean? And through Lent and then all the way up until Easter, I'm going to bring seven distinct meanings to the cross. That's not all of the meanings, but it's seven of them. Today we will look at the cross as the pinnacle of divine self disclosure, the pinnacle of divine. Self-disclosure. Now, here's the sermon in a sentence. My all-time favorite theological sentence. It's mostly Hans Urs von Balthasar, but I've tweaked it a little bit. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically... The clearest revelation of who God is. Until the strange emergence of modern atheism, everybody believed in God. Or to be more precise, everyone believed in the God's. In order to account for the phenomenon of being, these ancient people had the proper instinct to look beyond nature. So every culture, every single culture of the ancient world developed their own pantheon of transcendent gods and goddesses. But within these polytheistic religions, there was almost always a supreme God. And so they had a multitude of gods and goddesses, but they would have a supreme God. And I want to introduce you to some of the supreme gods of the empires that were reigning, rising and falling during the time of ancient Israel. I'm going to introduce you to these supreme gods. And these, these would have been the gods that were worshipped when Abraham is coming into Canaan. When Moses was leading Israel out of Egypt. When David was the king of Israel. When Elijah was the great prophet of Israel. And when Daniel was living in both Babylon and then later Persia. We'll start with the empire of Egypt. And their supreme God was Ra. Ra is the sun god. Ra had the body of a human and the head of a falcon. This is how Ra is... Depicted, um, as we look at Ra, there, there's there's massive symbolism here, and since I'm not here to really preach Egyptian religion of the ancient past, I'm not going to go through it all. But there's all kinds of symbols there, and uh, you know Ra's the sun god, and he, and he's got some weapons, and you see the you see the Ankh. the the symbol of life, and and, uh, he's on a boat on the Nile because he's also connected with the Nile, which was so vitally important to ancient Egypt. But very often, these supreme gods in these polytheistic religions were viewed as virtually unreachable. And so they, although they were the supreme gods, uh, they weren't given quite as much attention as some of the lesser gods. And in In Egypt, that would be Osiris, uh, Isis, Horus, and 2,000 other gods and goddesses that I'll not bother to name this morning. (laughs) Then there's uh, Babylon. The empire of Babylon figures prominently in Scripture, and the chief god is Marduk, uh, Marduk is also known as Bel. Bel just means Lord. Marduk means wisdom. So Lord Wisdom was this God. And, and the word Bel, meaning Lord, actually shows up in the Bible in both Isaiah and Jeremiah in their prophetic denouncements of Babylon. They, they, they speak disparagingly of Bel. Uh, but Bel is also associated with a with a pagan god that you have heard of, no doubt, uh, Baal or Baal, which was the the chief god of uh, you know of um, of the Canaanites, um, and uh, Marduk is also the god of thunder, which is typically a, a big deal. Whoever the god of thunder is in these ancient religions also was a chief god. The god of thunder. What you're looking at there is a sketch of a relief that was excavated in Nineveh in the late 1800s, and Marduk or Bel is portrayed there as destroying the chaos monster. So you see, you see that Bel is well armed. I mean, he's got some fancy tridents and a spear, and looks like he's wearing a wristwatch. I'm not sure about that. I, haven't got that one quite figured out. Uh, you know, he wants to be a God that's on time, and so he's got his wristwatch on, and he's destroying the, and you just look at, you see it, uh, it's an evocative image that gives you the kind uh, of power. That dude there's got power. He's got all kinds of weapons, and he's fearsome and strong, and he's able to destroy the chaos monster. That's Babylon. And I'm picking the. I'm, I'm not picking these empires at random. I'm picking these empires because all of these empires at one time or another dominated Israel, ruled over Israel, occupied Israel, or they were deported to uh, their empires. So the third empire is Persia. And this is Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda. Ahura means Lord. So this is, this is Lord Mazda and Mazda is the creator god, first appeared in the 6th century B.C. Uh, So this would have been the god, the chief god that was worshipped by King Cyrus and King Darius, which was part of Israel's experience because uh, many were deported and lived in Persia in that time, Others, and the the entire kingdom of Israel was under the dominion of the Persians. Uh, Later... Mazda becomes the chief god of Zoroastrianism, a religion in Persia. So, watch this, this would have been the chief god that the Magi worshipped until a star led them to Bethlehem and they bowed down and offered gifts unto a baby lying in a manger. So there's Mazda, and of course he's depicted as a dude on a horse. And this becomes a very, very common motif all around the world. You know, you go anywhere in the world, go to a capital city, and you will find that image. But this happens to be a god. This is the Persian god Mazda. And what he's actually doing there is he's offering the ring of sovereignty to one of the Persian kings. So the idea is that the, the Persian kings reign because the supreme god Mazda is. Uh, Giving them authority to reign. Uh, yesterday, Perry and I were talking about the ancient Persian pantheon because that's the kind of scintillating conversation we have. And she said, uh, Is Mazda still around? I said, Nope, nope, Mazda's been put out of business. Oh, you mean the car company? <laughs> Yeah, the car company still around, but, but Mazda, the Persian deity, has been put out of business. One more. This is a most important one. This is the most famous of the retired pagan gods. This comes from Greece. This is the Greek god Zeus. And who is Zeus? Well, Zeus is the king of the gods, and the gods reign on Mount Olympus. And and, and it's quite a soap opera, what goes on with those gods and goddesses on Mount Olympus. But they have a king, and this is their king, Zeus. And then the Romans didn't invent their new religion, didn't invent a new religion. So, So the Greek empire is followed by the Roman empire. The Romans just loved everything about Greece. They just took it and gave it Latin names. And they didn't change the pantheon, they just gave them Latin names instead of Greek names. So uh, for the Greeks, that god is Zeus, and for the Romans, it's Jupiter, but it's the same god. And Zeus also is the god of thunder. And that's why Zeus is often depicted, holding. This is, this is an actual idol that would have been in a temple from antiquity. And Zeus is often depicted holding a thunderbolt that's what that is. And so, um, Zeus is a, is a threatening God. And Zeus is um, depicted in postures that are fairly threatening. Often, uh, he's, he's standing in a stance with, with one hand, maybe accusing, and the other holding a lightning bolt that he's at any moment going to hurl. All right, so this here is a artistic depiction of really how Zeus probably occupied the minds of Greeks and Romans in the ancient world, that, that God is um, threatening, dangerous, that if God is not properly appeased at any moment, he's got that thunderbolt, strike you down. All right, so let's, uh, let's bring them all back. Here's my little Mount Rushmore of pagan gods. From Egypt, we have Ra. From Babylon, we have Marduk or Bel. From from Persia, we have Mazda, the god, not the car company. And from Greece, we have... Greece and Rome, we have Zeus and Jupiter. Now, when you look at these Gentile pagan gods, just look at them, what words come to your mind. I, I look at them and I think, powerful, violent, dangerous. You don't want to travel with them. Um, fearsome, in the sense that they evoke fear in us. What you're, in fact, what you're looking at, these are, these are accurate, fair depictions of how ancient pagan people viewed their gods, which is to say, this is how the gods of the ancient world lived in the minds of these ancient peoples, which is to say, this is their theology. This is how they thought and spoke about God. Now, I want to say this. I'm not mocking. I really want to be clear. I made a joke here and there, but really, I'm not actually mocking the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans for having these ideas about God because how else are they going to have any other idea? They're kind of on their own. They're wrestling with it. They're trying to figure it out. It's certainly no more ridiculous than the modern superstition of atheism. I have have plenty of respect for the struggle that the agnostic has. I can understand being agnostic about everything, but just to flat out say there is no God, that just strikes me as a rank superstition. Every bit as silly as we might, as modern people, view the ancient pantheons. Well, during the time of the Egyptian, Babylonian, Persian, Greek empires, which really covers the story told in the Old Testament, there was another people, a unique people who were very strange and very different. I'm talking about the Hebrews. They, first of all, they worshiped one God, just one. One. What a poverty of gods. I mean, did these people have these religions have thousands and thousands of gods? They're down to one. They have one God and. They have no image of this God, which was unthinkable in the ancient world. You have many gods, and you have many depictions of them. You have idols, you have statues. It looks like this: He's holding a spear, he's holding a thunderbolt, he's riding on a horse. This is what our God is like. The ancient Hebrews only have one God, and they say, "Well, what's He look like?" We don't know. We have no image. The ancient Hebrews had no image of God because in their Ten Commandments, the second one says this, you shall not make for yourself an idol or an image of the divine. In Solomon's dedicatory prayer of the temple... Because, you know, they, built the, they had the tabernacle with Moses, but then in the days of Solomon, they built a temple. Now, temples are, you know, common the world over. All of these other religions had temples because temples is where you put your idol of your God and where you worship. So now Israel has a temple, but there's no image in the temple. There's nothing to go see as far as the depiction of the divine. And in the opening line of his prayer of dedication at the temple, Solomon says, Yahweh dwells in thick darkness. Yahweh dwells in thick. It's a, it's, a, it's a poetic way of saying, we don't know what Yahweh looks like. We can't make an image of him. He dwells in thick darkness. Later, the prophet Isaiah will write, Truly, you are a God who hides yourself. So the ancient Hebrews have no image of God. They only have the Word. They have the Word. They have no image. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made by Him and apart from Him nothing was made that was made. But then the Word the Word of God the Word became flesh. John 1.14 The Word became flesh. The Word became human flesh, and dwelt among us, lived among us, pitched his tent among us, is maybe the most literal translation. The Word became flesh, pitched his tent among us, and we have seen, everybody say seen? We have seen his glory, his beauty. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Every image made of God, whether it's Ra, Marduk, Mazda, Zeus, and all the rest, is a false image and thus an idol. There was no true image of the invisible God who dwells in thick darkness, only the Word, But then the Word became flesh. And the Word became visible. That's why John says the Word, there's only the Word, but then the Word becomes flesh. And when the Word became flesh, then we can say we have seen His glory, the glory of God. We have seen the beauty and glory of God because the Word became visible in human flesh. Jesus Christ is not an idol. Jesus Christ is an icon. Jesus Christ is the true icon of the invisible God, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.15. Christ is the image, but the Greek word is icon. Christ is the image or icon of the invisible God. Hebrews says he is the exact imprint of god's very being not Ra riding in a boat with his spear not bell with his many weapons not mazda the dude on the horse not zeus with his thunderbolt no those are not the true images of god those are idols But Jesus is not an idol. Jesus is the icon. He is the exact representation of who God is. To see Jesus Christ is to see exactly, not approximately, exactly who God is. And that's why the climactic... Well, I mean, it's why we have this image here. Because it was... I mean, what was the climactic, definitive moment of God's self-disclosure? It's the crucifixion. He begins, born, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, but the moment of full disclosure of who God is, is the crucifixion. This is why Paul said to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The pinnacle of divine self-disclosure is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In other words, when we look, when we look at this, when we look at this, we say that's what God is like. Right there. God is like God is like that. Does that strike you as, does that stun you? Because it does me still after all these years. When we look at Christ crucified, we say that right there is exactly what God is like. Paul centered his gospel preaching on the crucifixion as he says to the Galatians, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Paul, in preaching to the Galatians, focuses on the crucifixion. Why? Because being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is, paradoxically, the clearest revelation of who God is. I noticed that when we were looking at those images of all those gods, they all have... Some kind of weapon in their hand. They've got a sword. They've got a thunderbolt. They have something. They have some way of harming you, of killing you. I look at Jesus, he has no weapon. His enemies have weapons. This guy's got a sword. This guy's got a spear, and we know where that will end up. This guy's got a battle axe. What does Jesus have in his hand? Nails. Nails. Because when we look at this, when we look at this, we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. Nothing reveals who God is more clearly than Christ crucified. Jesus Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ crucified is not an anomaly. It's not just an historical event. It's who God is. Left to our own, left to our own. If we're just on our own. I mean, you and I sitting here, you know. Mostly Americans here in the early 21st century, we're no, we're no more clever. We're not just inherently smarter than any of the Egyptians or Babylonians or Persians or Greeks. Left to our own devices, we too will think that God is like this. That's what will haunt our imagination when we think of God. God the transcendent being that is the answer to the question, why is there something instead of nothing, it'll, we'll, we will have these kinds of images. And we will see God as angry, violent, and retributive. We will see God as dangerous. We will see God as one who must be appeased lest He harm us. But through the revelation of the Incarnation, Culminating in the crucifixion, vindicated in resurrection, we discover that God is like this. This, 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 this is the pinnacle of divine self-disclosure. This is what God is like. I know, even Christians, even Christians living in the 21st century still sometimes have their imagination haunted with a Zeus-like God. That with one hand is pointing an accusatory finger and the other hand is just about, just about ready to let loose of the thunderbolt. And that haunts are and I'm telling you, God is not like that. He's like this. arms stretched out in proffered embrace, praying, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is what God is like. And all images. All ideas about God have to correspond to that. If someone begins to concoct, even using the Bible, an idea, an image, a depiction, a theory about God that doesn't correspond with this, you say, nope, that's wrong, that's false, that's an idol. And as John ends his first epistle, 1 John five twenty-one, little children, keep yourself from idols. We'll say it this way. Little children, keep yourself from false ideas about God. Little children, keep yourself from false ideas about God, that God is angry, violent, and retributive. When you start having that kind of thinking, just come here and say, no, he's like that. He's always been like that. There's never been a time when God was not like that. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We haven't always known that God is like that. But now we do. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. The apostle Paul, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Donald, if you would, bring me back the, uh, the four gods, the Mount Rushmore gods. Those images, every one of them, are designed to portray how we think power looks. Might, muscles, swords, weapons, threatening, thunderbolts. But Paul says this is the power of God. Not not this, not this guy here with his spear. This guy here with his sword on, here's another dude on a horse. They can't get rid of him. Paul says this is the power of God. We'll have to renew our mind to think like that. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, I like that, being saved, are you saved? Well, I'm being saved. Are you saved? Well, I'm being saved. Don't rush me. It takes a long time. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and this is from Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided, through the foolishness of our proclamation, and what is Paul preaching? He's preaching the cross. He'll tell these same people, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Jesus Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, that is, an offense, a scandal, because you know the idea of a crucified Messiah, oh, that's, how does that work? I thought, the, I thought the Messiah is supposed to be king, and if he gets crucified, how is he not a failed Messiah? So it's a stumbling block to Jewish thought. And foolishness to the Gentiles, because the Gentiles are completely convinced what makes sense is a dude on a horse. Lopping off the heads of the bad guys. Get on your horse, get your sword, kill enough bad guys, you got yourself an empire. That makes sense. You're telling me about a kingdom that is founded upon someone being crucified? That's foolishness. Gentile thought, pagan Gentile thought. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, as is Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's strength is stronger than human strength. Let me read that last verse again. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Paul does not mean that when God is weak, God is still stronger than humans. That's not what he means. That wouldn't be scandalous. That wouldn't be foolish. It wouldn't seem scandalous. It wouldn't seem foolish. It would just be a typical boast of conventional power i mean i can i could hear zeus saying i could beat you with just my left little pinky my weakest part is stronger than yours that is not what paul is saying about god rather paul is saying that god's power is precisely located in the weakness we see at the cross That's the power of God right there. The glory of God is not to wield a sword or hurl a thunderbolt. The glory of God is to be nailed to a tree, forgive his torturers, die in the name of eternal love, and thus save the world. This is what God is like, has always been like, and will always be like Jesus Christ is risen. Jesus Christ is glorified. Jesus Christ is Lord, and He always reigns from the cross. This is His eternal throne. This is what God is like. Let's just look at it a minute. Just, just stand in silence. Amen. And now what is to be done? We should come to the table. Because as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Stand with me. Let's make our prayer of confession. Most merciful God, Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ your sins are forgiven. This is the table, not of the church but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and for those who want to love Him more. So come you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.